Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. I hope you had a great weekend, and I'm really glad that you've joined us today. As we say a lot on this program, Americans are more divided right now than it ever seems we have been. And calls for unity have intensified as the Biden administration takes office, but no one seems to agree on how to achieve that elusive civil society. There's also a lot of disagreement about whether civility and the ability to get along is the goal. A lot of people think that justice and the idea of making up for the wrongs of the past ought to take precedence over the idea of just getting along. After years of political disagreement and discord, are Americans finally ready to listen to each other more and learn more? As many have come to understand, practicing open-mindedness is a little easier said than it is done. And many of us seem to be stuck in really hardened belief systems, making discourse around any subject feel really stressful. Today, we're going to talk with somebody who says reconsidering long-held beliefs doesn't have to be a painful practice, but it does take work. Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist at Wharton and is the New York Times bestselling author of four books. His newest book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know, examines the importance of questioning our own opinions and embracing a little humility. Adam Grant, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. As a Detroit native, it's great to be back home in Michigan. Uh, yes, no, it's great to have you here, at least virtually. <laughs> um, so in your book, you talk about open-mindedness, which is something we hear a lot about. What does it mean to really be open-minded to rethinking our own beliefs, and why is that so important? Well, I think it means being careful not to think too much like a preacher, a prosecutor, or a politician. Uh, psychologists find that we do this all the time. We go into preacher mode thinking, okay, I have a set of sacred beliefs and my job is to defend them and spread them. Or we go into prosecutor mode and say, okay, I've got to win an argument here. And that means I have to prove the other side wrong. And I worry if you stop there and you're stuck thinking like a preacher or a prosecutor, you're not really willing to question yourself because you've already, already decided I'm right and you're wrong, and that means you need to change, but I get to stick to my convictions. Mm. And when we go into politician mode, we're a little bit more flexible because we're trying to win the approval of an audience. So we might campaign and lobby by telling them what they want to hear, but that doesn't mean we're changing what we really think. And I think a, a good path toward becoming a little bit more open is to think like a scientist. I don't mean, Stephen, that you have to walk around with a microscope or a white lab coat. What I mean is that scientists are people who prefer humility over pride and curiosity over conviction. They know what they don't know, and they're excited to find out and discover new things. And I think if we all did that a little bit more often, we wouldn't get stuck in these traps where we realize after the fact, oh, I should have rethought that decision I made. So it seems to me that everything around us right now kind of encourages the opposite style of talking to people or engaging with people. And, and I'm thinking particularly here about, about social media, which has grown so much in the last five or 10 years to be such a critical part of our lives and a critical part of the way that we interact with each other. Uh, and all of the sort of social norms that have developed on social media, 
really reward uh, one-sidedness. They reward the, the, the kind of shutdown of, of opposition. They reward uh, the consequences that we're allowed to mete out to people that we don't agree with. I'm blocking that person. I'm never going to speak to that person uh, again. And, and so the, the idea that we might take a different tack, I think, immediately bumps up against habits that all of us, uh, I think, are forming and and becoming really used to, even if we don't intend to. I mean, I think there's a subconscious driver in social media toward the one-sidedness and intolerance of anybody who disagrees. Yeah, I think that's true, Stephen. And obviously, we need to think long and hard about the algorithms and whether they just reward people for staying in their their filter bubbles or their echo chambers. But I also think there are choices we can all make to try to be a little bit more open and curious. And I'm not going to suggest that we should listen to trolls, right, or necessarily want to hear people who are engaging in bad faith arguments. But I think there is an opportunity to say, look, if you pay attention to who you follow, you don't just have to listen to people who agree with your conclusions. Right. What if you paid more attention to people who challenge your thought process? What if you even dared to disagree with some of your own arguments? And I think that's a, at least a step in a direction where we can get exposed to views that might not necessarily make us feel good, but do push us to think hard. Hmm. So when we try to do that, this idea of a diversity of thought, does this lead us to automatically more creative solutions more creative interactions with other people, more tolerance. Is it a key ingredient to, to, to being able to, I guess, relate to people who, who we disagree with? I, I think it depends a lot on how we do it. So I think one of the mistakes that we make in social media, and we see this in the traditional media too, is we're quick to divide things into us versus them. And psychologists have a name for this. It's called binary bias. It's when you take a very complex spectrum of attitudes and you oversimplify it into only two categories. And so if we take any of the hot button issues today, let's say, you know, gun rights versus safety or abortion, um, it's very easy to assume, look, there's, you know, there's one camp on one extreme and one on the other. And what we don't see there is that there are lots of shades of gray in the middle, right? The vast majority of, of Americans, Republican and Democrat, favor universal background checks on guns. And so if we don't allow for that middle ground to exist, it's really easy to look at the other side and say, those people believe things that are wrong or stupid. And so I'm not going to talk with them or listen to those people. If you, if you can see more of the nuances, more of the complexity in people's views, you start to realize, okay, you know what, there might be an opportunity for us to identify some common ground here. Mm. So I, I want to ask you about a conversation that we had on this program a week ago uh, we had a professor of political science and director of the African-American Studies Program at the uh, University of Detroit Mercy with us. Uh, he's the author of a new book titled Against Civility, uh, The Hidden Racism and Our Obsession with Civility. And uh, we had a really interesting conversation about the, the, the inability to kind of cleave off the arguments about how we – interact with each other and and the calls for people to be more civil uh, from the history of that being weaponized by people who want to defend institutions of inequality and deny uh, deny equal rights to to African Americans uh, in in particular and and of course 
it's not just uh, Alex Amelin's book that that argues this. There's a lot of pushback against this idea of more open-mindedness and civility that says the, the, the real issue is the injustice that exists uh, in our society. And, and if you dealt with that, it would be easier to have a, an honest conversation about being more civil, being more open-minded. I, w- I would really love to hear how you respond to that kind of, uh, to that kind of argument. I I think it's an important point. I think the place I would start is to recognize that in general, it's people in positions of power who need to do more of the rethinking. Because, you know, if if you've lived your whole life from a position of opportunity and privilege, you probably haven't had to question a lot of the choices you make or a lot of the systems that you you build or even the culture that you're part of. Whereas if you're a member of of a non-dominant group or a group that's been marginalized, you've had to do lots of twisting of of your beliefs and your actions in order to fit in. And I think that there's there's a critical point to be made there. I think that that being said, you know, there there is a long history in this country of, of testing different approaches to driving social change. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Martin Luther King Jr. succeeded where Malcolm X failed. Um, this notion of civil disobedience was, you know, was obviously extremely powerful. And there's a long legacy of, of evidence showing that when uh, when social movements are peaceful, they're actually more likely to drive change in the long run uh, because they stoke less fear. And so, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily saying that we always have to be perfectly respectful <laughs> toward every single person that we disagree with, but in general, it's one thing we know in psychology is that people don't listen to you until they feel heard. And if, you know, if people are not willing to, to listen to anyone who disagrees with them, then it's hard to imagine that we make much progress. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with uh, Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist at Wharton and a New York Times bestselling author of four books. His newest is called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. We're talking about uh, the open-mindedness that is missing from much of the dialogue in this country right now, especially when you're talking about politics or culture. Um, many of us are pretty dug in with what we believe uh, and respond to other people that way, uh, either lecturing them about uh, what we believe and why they ought to believe it or just ignoring them, shutting them down and saying, you know what, I don't even need to listen to your side of things. I understand uh, the way things should be, and I am right about those things. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and let us know if you've lost people uh, in your life, lost the ability to have conversations with people because of a difference in beliefs. Are those political beliefs? Are those cultural beliefs? Are those religious beliefs? Uh, Are there things that you have just been unable to maintain reasonable dialogue with people in your life over because of those differences. Uh, Talk about how you navigate tough conversations with people in your lives. And has your own thinking on an issue ever been changed? Also give us a call and tell us if you're somebody who has embraced the idea, maybe recently, of trying to be a little more open-minded, trying to be less strident about what you believe as a way of maybe convincing people who disagree with you to, to consider your point of view and maybe come over to your side. I'd really love to hear from folks today about how you navigate differences, especially in the era of the pandemic, 
uh, in the era of the Black Lives Matter protests uh, last year, last summer, uh, that were uh, incredibly uh, divisive, even though they were also incredibly effective uh, at, at drawing attention to longstanding inequalities. Uh, tell us how you navigate the differences that you have with people over the election last November and the incredible series of lies and misinformation uh, that were spread afterward. Are you able to talk with people you disagree with? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can always go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Before we get to our listeners, Adam, I want to ask you about uh, this rise in Conspiracy theories, the rise in misinformation, uh, the the, the bald-faced lies that have been embraced by people in positions of leadership uh, that poison the ability to have reasonable dialogue uh, across political or social social differences. What are we to make of those in the in the context of trying to be more more open-minded? Should we be open-minded? about fact or about uh, uh, mistruth? Well, I think it's it's scary to watch so many people believing things that are clearly false. I, I don't think openness means that you're willing to be persuaded by bad arguments right, or, or faulty data and logic. <laughs> I think it means you still have quality standards. And what you're trying to do is stay flexible so that you change your mind when you come across better data or sharper logic. Um, I think one mistake that we're making with with people who believe in whether it's fake news or conspiracy theories is when we do confront them, we we start to ask them a lot of why questions. Like, why do you believe this? And the problem with why questions is people can come up with a long list of reasons to you know to dig in their heels. And what psychologists keep finding is that it's more effective to ask how questions. So if you have a friend who believes in conspiracies, for example, you might say, okay, you know, help me understand how in the world would, would this government, which you think is completely incompetent, by the way, manage to orchestrate this? Walk me through how it would, you know, it would not necessarily catch the eye of even a single journalist who might be able to win a Pulitzer Prize for breaking this scandal. Um, and, you know, just talk me through the logistics of that. And what happens when you ask people those kinds of how questions is when they start to explain, they see the gaps in their own knowledge. And that makes them, in some cases, a little bit less extreme and a little bit less entrenched. Hmm. This idea of fighting misinformation with the idea of evidence-based arguments, I think, is one of the things that uh, is emerging, at least in my mind, as one of the most effective tools for fighting misinformation. Asking people, how do you know that? when they assert something that that you think is untrue. Where did you get the idea that that was true? And show me, show me what evidence you're using uh, to draw that conclusion. I think that's a, a good starting point for dealing with things that, that aren't true. It, it doesn't always work because, as you point out, lots of people are just really dug in uh, to the idea of what they what they believe. But I think... Uh, from a logical perspective, that that's a it's just a it's just a a way to kind of get a, a away from that that dug in uh, nature and get to something that maybe everyone can agree on. 
Yeah, it can be. I think, you know, sometimes it does take you down a rabbit hole. And I think what psychologists have learned here is that if you want to change what people believe, sometimes you have to change what they want to believe. There, there are motivations behind attachments to false news, to conspiracy theories. And often they, they stem from a desire to believe that a, a chaotic world is controllable and predictable. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't want to, they don't want to recognize that, you know, that a pandemic could just start, right, without any human causation. Mm. Uh, and that's an uncomfortable thing to wrestle with. And so if you can, if you can work at their root intolerance for uncertainty, their discomfort with ambiguity, um, you know, the, the, just the existential terror they may feel at the sense of, you know, of, of life being completely out of their hands, sometimes they, they become a little bit more open. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Adam Grant, and we are going to begin to hear from you, the listeners, Mike in Bloomfield, Jimmy in Birmingham, Ross in Mount Clemens, Rosemary in Dearborn. We will get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We've also got great comments on social media that we'll share. You can always go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we will try to work them into the program as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist at Wharton and a New York Times bestselling author. His newest book is called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. We're talking about open-mindedness and admitting that uh, we maybe don't know everything about the things that we believe, admitting that there may be reasonable other ways to think through uh, solutions to our differences in politics and in culture. Uh, how easy is it for you to do that? How often do you catch yourself not practicing that, really digging in on what you believe and trying to shut down the other side? We want to hear from you this hour about uh, how you navigate these kind of differences, especially in the era of a pandemic, uh, of new calls to reframe uh, this country around a paradigm of equality as opposed to inequality. How do you find yourself uh, engaging in conversations with people you don't agree with? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we will work you into the conversation. Let's start with Jimmy in Birmingham. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Good to talk to you again. Hey, how are you? I'm good. You know, uh, it's on the screener. Something that's really helped me frame this conversation for myself um, is a TED Talk done by a woman named Brene Brown. She's a social worker of like 20 years, and her research has been all around connection, human connection. And frankly, doing that to say, hey, the only reason why we're all here is for connection. Like that's the way we're hardwired is for that, right? Even from birth. And her thesis around connection is the one thing that keeps us out of connection is a lack of vulnerability. And if you don't, if you can hear me for a minute, I'll kind of quote some of the things that she has said that has spoken to me. 
um, around this idea of how we need connection, or excuse me, we need vulnerability for connection. And she basically says it's having the connect, uh, vulnerability is having the courage to face uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Uh, most of us numb vulnerability, though, by making everything that is uncertain certain. I'm right, you're wrong, shut up. Mm. Religion has gone from a belief in faith and mystery to certainty. That's it, just certain. This is what politics also looks like. There's no discourse, there's no conversation, there's just blame. Mm. And so for me, it stems, all of this stems from us be, lacking vulnerability and, and choosing to be right versus vulnerable and say, I am more concerned about connecting with you than I am about being right. And so I'm going to be vulnerable. Yeah. And, and, and so that's, that's kind of what's been helping me through, you know, this journey of, of connection with people. Yeah, Jimmy, I, I, I love the interjection of that word into this conversation, that vulnerability, because it gets to one, one of the other drivers, I think here, which is, which is fear. Uh, we fear being vulnerable uh, in our society, and and I think we especially feel fear being vulnerable to people we see as uh, as opposed to us, right? People we think who are on the quote other other side of things. Uh, Adam Grant, re- react to to Jimmy's observation here. Well, Jimmy, first of all, your your timing is impeccable. I was on Bernays Dare to Lead podcast last week, and she's on my <laughs> TED podcast, Work Life, tomorrow. And, That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, incredible timing. What, one of the things that her work has helped me do is is actually show more vulnerability in some of these interactions with people who disagree with me. Yeah, I've, I've sometimes been called a logic bully because when I think someone is wrong, I feel like it's my moral responsibility to correct them. And what I've learned to do is, is actually call that out in the beginning of a conversation and say, hey, I know we're about to, you know, t- about to debate this. I just wanted to let you know that sometimes, even though I never went to law school, I go into prosecutor <laughs> mode. And that's not who I want to be. I want to be open to learning from you, just like I hope you're open to listening to me. And so if you catch me doing that, please let me know. And it usually gets a laugh and it, you know, it kind of breaks the ice a little bit. And sometimes people will call me out on it. Just the other day, a friend said, hey, you're going into lawyer mode again. And it was a chance for me to hit the reset button and be more curious and more open. Mm. Uh, Michael on Twitter says, it seems like national politics and both political parties have embraced the binary term that uh, Adam, you brought up earlier. He wonders if you have any thoughts on how national political parties have an impact on the way we, we discuss these things. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I've talked to a few members of Congress about this, and they're, they're frustrated by how much tribal party politics are, you know, are forcing us to one side or the other. I think there's, there's an opportunity for a little bit more complexity here, and, and there's an experiment that I, I think has a path, at least, in the right direction. So Peter Coleman is a psychologist who runs a difficult conversations lab where he brings people together from opposite sides of a spectrum to try to agree on a joint statement about where they they share some common ground. And he found that if you you give them an article on, let's say, gun rights um, and talk about what one side believes and what the other side believes, that about 46% of people then will come to common ground on a different issue that they disagree on, like abortion. But if instead you give them a gun rights article that says, hey, this is a multifaceted issue with many different opinions, it's not two sides of a coin, it's like looking through many lenses of a prism, Hmm. then those two people have a 100% probability of finding some common ground on abortion. 
And I think it would be great to see more of this happening in national politics, right? To say, okay, you know what? Anytime somebody gives you one side and the other side, ask, well, what's the third perspective and the fourth perspective that's missing here? Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Mike in Bloomfield. Mike, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi. Uh, This has been a great, uh, great conversation. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate your guest. Your guest kind of hit on the topic I was going to talk about, but uh, I could also bring up, um, I was going to talk about a friend's discussion about abortion and how we came around to, we, we both have been in the criminal justice system, and so we've had to face our own weaknesses and also face our own errors in thinking. And one of the things that uh, we, we took a long car ride together having a conversation, and uh, when abortion came up, you know, he's, he's a... Uh, father of a divorcee and has to pay child support and is failing to do so at times. And here he's anti-abortion. And we walked all the way around the conversation to Mm. a point where we realized that the thing we want is alternatives for women. You know, many women that are choosing abortion have a Sophie's choice, you know, to live in poverty and raise a child in poverty or to choose an abortion and a chance to have a successful family later. And a lot of times these, we ended up agreeing that the best choice is to give more options to women. To give, so we, we came a full circle from an emotional you know, preacher discussion all the way around to speaking solutions. And the two-and-a-half-hour car ride gave us the opportunity to get all the way around to solution discussions. Wow. Wow. That, that is, uh, that's really something. And, and the subject matter there, of course, is one of the most divisive Subject matters uh, in in our culture. So so kudos to you for being able uh, to being able to do that with uh, with the person you were talking to, Adam Grant. Uh, react to Mike's Mike's experience here. Well, it's it's always amazing to see a long conversation like that move towards solutions. And yeah, I think one of the things that that helps us get there is is recognizing that this was not always a partisan issue, right? If you trace the history of of abortion votes in politics, uh, as as recently as the 1970s. Republicans and Democrats had relatively similar voting records on abortion. And obviously that changed dramatically. But I think one of the things that that helps about having that that historical perspective is to say, okay, you know what? What this means is our views are not set in stone. And I think this is an exercise we could all do more often, right? If, If you could rewind to, let's say, the 1500s, you would probably believe some ridiculous things about science. If you could go back to the 1700s, you would probably know some people who didn't even question whether slavery was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so seeing those kinds of evolution in people's belief systems, I think it's just a simple reminder that just because we're attached to a a particular ideology today doesn't mean we're stuck with it for our whole lives. Mm. Uh, Mike, again, thanks very much for the call and for sharing that story. Let's go to Adam on the east side. Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks hey. for taking my call. I listen sure. to you every morning. Oh, thank you. I was just telling you, your screener, uh, this little story. I have a coworker, and he's a black guy. And he was so dead set. Me and him, this, we had a bet, a bet way back before the election. He bet me 50 bucks that Trump would get in office. So leading up to the to the election, he just kept trying to up the bet. So I'm like, well, no, let's just keep it at 50. I don't want you. To, I don't want to take all your money. <laughs> he It shot all the way up to 100 bucks. So after the election, he was still dead set because he he believed in the QAnon and and the deep state <laughs> and and like I say, I'm I'm a little shocked, I'm taken aback because this is a black guy that grew up in in Detroit, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, well, 
I didn't get my money until the sixth, the sixth of January. <laughs> but I did get my money. But you did get your money. <laughs> I got my money. <laughs> right. Do you feel like? Uh, do you feel like you had any influence? Convincing oh, your friend? No, that, uh, no, no, no. I gloated no. too. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what. That's I rubbed it in. I rubbed, I rubbed it in big time. <laughs> uh, Adam, I really appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, Adam Grant, this is not exactly what you're preaching, but uh, it's it's an approach, right? <laughs> you, you know what, though? I think for, if you want to win a bet like that in the future, there's there's actually some great evidence to work from. My colleague Phil Tetlock studies super forecasters, people who compete in tournaments to try to predict future events, like who's going to win a presidential oh, election. Wow. And it turns out that the average person, when they register a forecast, they'll revise it two times. The best forecasters update it twice as often, on average four times. And so anytime you go into a bet like that, it's worth saying, okay, if I'm not willing to at least revise a little bit a few more times, then I'm probably sticking to an opinion that's not going to come true. And one of the ways that the great forecasters keep themselves open is they make a list of conditions that would change their mind. So instead of saying, I know Biden's going to win, or I'm sure Trump is going to win, they say, well, you know, I think Biden probably has the edge right now. But if the, these three things were to happen, then I would end up flipping. Uh, and that that sort of keeps you honest, right? Mm, wow, wow! Uh, again, Adam, thanks very much for the call and uh, the comments. Let's go to Rosemary in Dearborn. Rosemary, welcome to the show. Hello, hi. hi. Um, I just want to say I love this conversation. Um, this is wow. So. What I am thinking of is I, I work as a recovery coach, and um, Adam said that people won't listen until they feel heard. And something that I use a lot in my practice is motivational interviewing, which is really about drawing out somebody's internal motives and reasons um, for for wanting to change that, um, that they will convince themselves if given the opportunity um, and uh, you were asking, you were saying you can ask people, how would that work? You know, like the conspiracy theory thing. Well, how exactly would that work? And it made me think of this acronym HOW that is used in some, you know, recovery circles, being honest, open-minded, and willing. Um, and so I think that's really important to changing. You say, uh, you could even consider something like a stodgy belief system, if you will, of, of addiction, alcoholism, being humbly willing to listen to a different point of view mm. um, and being honest about um, about what's really going on. Um, and then also just listening to the last couple of comments, I can relate so much to being a logic bully. I used to think that um, logic should be required education for everybody in the country, and maybe things would be better um, <laughs> because if only people would think logically. Um, and, and I still am a big fan of logic. Um, however, like um, I love what you said about looking through many different lenses of a prism. Um, I tend to look at things in a sort of binary um, terms of duality. I also have a bipolar, you know, maybe it's just the way I am. But I talk a lot about um, shades of gray um, mm. on my own um, YouTube channel that life happens in <laughs> shades of gray and people's motives aren't always logical, yeah. right? They're yeah. not always logical. And that's what that motivational interviewing is about. That's what coaching people through something like addiction, if they can um, change a point of view, 
for that by being honest, open-minded, and willing, I think that can apply to just yeah. about anything. Uh, Rosemary, I love I love the the application here that you're talking about to the world of addiction and the things that we ask people to do to change their addictive behavior. Open-mindedness uh, is is of course one one of them, and and willingness to reconsider uh, what you believe to be. Uh, the truth and and to believe to be right, uh, th- th- those are those are bedrocks. Uh, Adam Grant, uh, I wonder what your reaction is. Yeah, Rosemary, I was thrilled to hear you mention motivational interviewing. Chapter seven of Think Again is about the science of motivational interviewing, and in particular, its application to opening people's minds if they're believing in vaccine myths. Mm-hmm. And this is it's one of the most powerful approaches I've ever come across for having thoughtful conversations with people who might be resistant to change. And the basic premise is that you can't really force somebody to change their mind. You're better off trying to find their own reasons for change and help them actually articulate those. And motivational interviewing experts make this distinction between sustained talk and change talk. Sustained talk is a set of reasons to stay the course. Change talk is, you know, some kind of desire or will to to make an adjustment. And one of the the best conversations I had with a friend actually, who's who's very opposed to vaccines, was just saying, okay, help me understand, you know, in what circumstances you would consider getting a vaccination. And he said, well, you know, maybe if there was, you know, a, an extraordinary outbreak of malaria, and you know, it has a very high high fatality rate, and the vaccine, you know, has been tested for a long time. And all of a sudden, I realized, you know what, he's not opposed to all vaccines in all situations. Mm -hmm. And now we can have a more nuanced conversation about, well, when and how much evidence do you need? And I don't think he's going to get a vaccine tomorrow, but I think it was (laughs) was a much better discussion than we ever had when I was preaching and prosecuting. Yeah. Finding those places where people actually have flexibility. uh, First of all, it requires engaging and not making assumptions about uh, how dug in they are, but but it also leads you to uh, being able to have you know better and and fuller conversations. Um, okay, Adam Grant, uh, organizational psychologist at Wharton and author of the new book Think Again: The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. I hope you don't rethink that. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> okay, we're going to take another quick break. And coming up next, we're going to talk with the English language editor of the Yemeni American News about how digital democracy, in some cases, is silencing activists. We've seen lots of governments go virtual during the pandemic. Some of them are using that as a way to crack down on openness. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Detroit Today. 